This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Listen up, men. The ABC is testing a new prototype, codenamed Last Resort. It was designed by one of their top specialists, showrunner Sean Ryan. Now, we don't know yet if this Last Resort program is going to work, but if it does, well, that could be a game changer. Captain Johnson, Officer Harbin, I'm sending you on a reconnaissance mission. We want to know everything there is to know about this thing. Study it, analyze it, and report back. I expect weekly dispatches from St. Marina. The fate of our nation depends on it. So get to it. You have the con. The date is 10-15-2012. This is Dispatch 004 from the coast of St. Marina. The purpose of this message is to report our observations on the new prototype that has been launched by the ABC, codenamed Last Resort. I'm Captain Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my XO, Greg Harbin. If you wouldn't mind, sir, uh, permission to speak freely. <sighs> you know, there are times when I really don't want to grant you permission to speak freely, but I- I'm going to go ahead and give it to you this time. Very good. It wouldn't be much of a show if I was just sitting here saying, yes, sir. No, sir. Do I really need you? Can't I just report on what we've observed on my own? I mean, come on. <laughs> Probably could manage. Can't you go, you know, check up on the rest of the crew or, or take a nap or something? You know, what What I'm told is that the life of a Navy officer is really not like action and running around and, and shooting guns and piling ship. It's like a lot of paperwork. Like they don't get downtime. They don't do anything interesting. They're just sitting in a room <laughs> writing reports all day long. It does not sound very fun. All right. Well, let's talk about this week's episode of the show. Uh, this is the third episode of Last Resort. It's titled Eight Bells, and it was written by Eileen Myers and directed by Michael Offer, both of whom ha- have several TV credits to their name. Eileen Myers has written a lot for uh, and, and produced some shows on HBO, uh, including Big Love and Hung. And Michael Offer is Australian, and he's directed a lot of TV stuff over there. So they're both very experienced writers and directors. Greg, why don't you remind us what happened in this episode? Yeah, so essentially this episode was an action-adventure drama uh, centered around the the hostages that were taken that we've been hearing about. There's now three hostages and Chaplin goes to Surratt, who's sort of the warlord in charge of St. Marina to basically say like, do you have them? Can I get them back? What do we have to do? And Surratt sends them to go past the Navy blockade to pick up some contraband from the ships that are basically on the other side of the blockade. And, you know, along the way there's mishaps with the cloaking device they have to go down into a trench, all sorts of crazy stuff. But they get back. Everything's fine, except that they're they're later than they were supposed to be. And Surratt has shot one of the hostages. And basically at the end, Chaplin has to deal with the fact that he only got two of his men back, even though he did exactly what Surratt told him to do. Yeah, that's the main plot of the episode. Uh, there's also a subplot involving Autumn Reeser's character, Kylie Sinclair. She's continuing to investigate what exactly is going on in Washington. And Dishin Lockman's character, Tani, and uh, Daniel Lissing's character, King, they have a little subplot, and there's some sexual tension starting to develop between those two. Mm-hmm. But yeah, most of the episodes focused on these three sailors that were kidnapped. Brannon, Cortez, and I think the third one's name was Redmond. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, they kept calling him Red, but, but yes, he was um, Petty Officer Redmond. 
So real quick, what did you think of this episode? You know, I really, I really did like this one a lot. I thought it really delved into a lot of the interesting stuff about the characters. And it finally felt like they were slowing down. Like the pilot was at this breakneck pace. The second episode still was, was juggling an awful lot of balls. I felt like this one settled on a few stories it wanted to tell. And it told them fully. I didn't feel like I was missing anything or that they were rushing through. Yeah, oh, it, it really did slow down. I, I think that there are a few sequences that were a bit too slow for me, <laughs> honestly. But maybe that's just because, you know, the, the first two episodes were really kind of breakneck paced. Mm-hmm. But overall, it, this episode, I think, introduces some really interesting new conflicts. Mm-hmm. For example, just the opening scene brings up this idea that sailors have been stealing from the townspeople. Yeah. And there's this big confrontation that Kendall has with one of the sailors about stealing a banana. And it becomes this big thing, and eventually Kendall has to put that sailor in the brig. Right. They're really fractured, especially at the very start of the episode. They're still they're they're going down party lines. There's people who don't like what's going on, and, and even if they're going along with it, they're still lashing out. And I feel like this was an episode where Chaplin was really trying to cement this group of people to say, look, we need to stick together. Sort of that, you know, that lost moment of live together, die alone. He even lets the cob out of the brig. And he says, you know, your word is still good enough. If you tell me you're not going to sow dissension and you're going to back me up, then I will let you out because we need we need unity more than I need you sitting in the brig. Yeah, I really, really liked that development. Because I think it would be easy in a show like this for it to kind of play things as black and white. And mm-hmm. you've got Chaplin, who's supposed to be our hero, and you've got Cobb, Prosser, who's kind of like the villain of the show. But I, I like how the show is basically showing us that everybody is kind of in this moral gray zone. Mm-hmm. There's no one that's completely right and no one that's completely wrong. And I thought it was great how Chaplin basically told the Cobb, hey – you want me in front of a court martial. That's what I want too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to make my case. Yeah. In public, we we both want the same thing. We just have different ways of going about it. I'm actually not entirely convinced by him saying that. I still feel like he's kind of willing to make this island his home, at least for the foreseeable future. I don't see him rushing to court martial as much as he was trying to tell the cop that he was. Cuz he knows, especially if he goes right now, that he's just going to end up, at the very least, in jail for the rest of his life, or probably executed based on military law. Well, I think that he's the kind of person, you know, I, I, I kind of believe him when he says he does want a court-martial, but I think he, 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 he wants to be certain that it'll be a fair court-martial, and that he'll right. at least be given a chance to make his case. Yeah. As to whether or not that could happen anytime soon, <laughs> that's up for debate. So I think you're right when you say that he is quite willing to settle down here and wait it out if necessary. Yeah, and in, and in Washington we see I always just call him that guy from that guy from X Men who played the senator, uh, but in this one he's playing <laughs> he's playing Admiral Shepard, Bruce Davidson. Yeah, Bruce Davidson, who's who pops up in everything. Yes, and it's always fun to see him. He's always great in everything he's in. He was even in an episode of Battlestar Galactica playing like an evil doctor who was killing people. <laughs> just, he's always great when he pops up. But here he is, and he, he's telling Autumn Reeser, I can't do anything about what's going on in Washington. 
Like I, I'm, I'm, my name is too big. I'm being watched. And he tells Autumn Reese, like, I need you to be doing stuff. Like, I know that you only think about yourself. You don't care about anything, but you're the only one who knows enough and is sneaky enough and has enough contacts to actually make something happen in Washington. Which, that's pretty scary when, when Washington's last hope is this Autumn Reeser character who's basically been going around sleeping with people to uh, profit for, for the whole rest of the series up until this point. Right. And I, I want to talk uh, about her in a second. But um, getting back to mm-hmm. Cobb yeah. real quick, I like how the same qualities that make him a quote-unquote villain are the qualities that also make him, in this episode, more of a good guy and a good soldier, when you think about it. His his commitment to following orders and his commitment to protocol and his commitment to what he views as the right thing mm-hmm. for his men. And I like how Chaplin is able to use that to his advantage and say, hey, I know we have our differences, but I also know that you're committed to the people on this submarine mm-hmm. and you're committed to this crew and you want to help us get them back. So even though you hate me, <laughs> I trust you to to help me in this case and right. do the right thing. You know, it just goes to show you that the person you think is your enemy could actually be your friend yeah. if the right situation yeah. arises. Now, does Prosser do anything, like, particularly heroic in this episode? Not really, but he follows orders. Right, he does. <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't actively sow dissent. And you could argue that just him being there yeah. on the submarine does a little bit to lift morale and kind of bring the crew together if they can see that, hey, maybe we're not quite as divided as we thought. Yeah, because I feel like they wouldn't have been able to make it through this harrowing blockade run if the whole crew hadn't been willing to work together. Right. And that was like, that was the big part of the the episode. I guess we can put off Washington for a minute because they do, they get the whole crew onto the boat and say, we've got to get to the other side of the perimeter and back in what? Eight hours. That's what Surratt lays down. He, they finally go to Surratt, and Surratt is... Uh, he's, he's a real jerk, this guy. Like, he's basically saying, I want you guys to respect me. He, that's really his only motive, at least for, for grabbing the sailors originally, is I want you guys to realize that I'm a force to be reckoned with. And Chaplin kind of treats him that way. He kind of goes along with exactly what Surratt wants done. Right, and we'll talk about that more when we get on to our main topic, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is interesting that whole this whole show is basically one, it's about loyalty and mixed loyalties, and two, it's about power and mm-hmm. trying to get control and trying to get respect, right? And these different struggles for power that are occurring on this island, mm-hmm. and we get the sense that some of that stuff is happening in DC as well. Yeah, we're just not seeing it, but clearly there's some huge power struggles going on uh, on the other side of the, of the world as well. Getting back to, to last week's episode, mm-hmm. we saw that Curry is now Secretary of Defense. Yeah. And there is a brief clip of him on television talking about why they had to nuke Pakistan. And I was very pleased to see, you know, I hadn't realized this before, but Secretary of Defense Curry is played by Jay Carnes, who yes. was a major character on The Shield and he showed up on a bunch of shows in the past, and Sean Ryan has worked with him before, and he's a great actor, so I think we'll probably be seeing more of him in the future. Yeah, I, I feel like they didn't just cast him for his voice. Right. We're definitely going to be seeing 
seeing more of him. And, th- and that's going to be really cool to see. Like, this was a very much, let's not show much of Washington. Let's really show the power struggles going on on the island. But I think you're right. Yeah, this is, this is a world where there are these constant power struggles going on. People doing things kind of shady, but people always jockeying for who's in control of the situation. And I think that's one thing that Surratt, when dealing with these hostages, he's always in control in that situation. It's kind of terrifying. The, the, the dinner scene where there's the three of them and he wants to punish one of them. And Cortez sort of gives herself over to him to save the other two, to keep anyone from, from being killed, I guess. And it, it, it's kind of a terrifying scene to, to see, to, to realize how much of a horrible situation Chaplin's gotten them into. Like, he wasn't thinking, oh, there, there might be a warlord, I better protect my men. He let them get captured. And it took him quite a bit of time before he got around to figuring out how to get them back. Well, here's the interesting thing about that, and, and about this whole situation with Surratt, is that, again, this is, this is another case where Surratt feels like he's doing what's in the best interests of the island. Mm-hmm, yeah. He thinks that he's doing the right thing. He tells Chaplin, quote, uh, you brought violence to this island. Yep. You know, and there's that whole thing with the kid that was shot, and they they never really explain what exactly happened. They don't. And how that kid was hurt, and I kind of wish that they had gone a little bit more into that. Yeah, I, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it was a cut scene from last week, but he was, like, watching from the woods or something, got hit by stray fire. Definitely not anything we saw last week, and, and we don't know if it was our people who shot him or if it was one of the Russians. But, you know, Surratt's point, which is, this wouldn't have happened if you guys weren't here, it's very valid. Well, maybe. <laughs> he is a warlord, <laughs> well, so yes. I'm sure violent stuff happens on the island. <laughs> but that is a good question. You know, is the presence of the Colorado inspiring more division, more conflict, more violence? And to what extent are Chaplin and his crew responsible mm-hmm. for that? It's one of those things that's it's really thought-provoking and, and more than you'd think. To, to present it as, um, to some extent, Surratt is right. To, to some extent, Chaplin's doing very gray area things. Even though he believes, you know, he's got good motives, his direct actions are not leading to the best result, even most of the time. Like, maybe some of the time, his actions are leading to the best result. Right. Again, last week, we, we talked a little bit about how the show is dealing with themes of America and American identity mm-hmm. and, and, and who we are as a nation now that we've gotten ourselves into two wars in the Middle East and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And it kind of does make you think about, you know, just real life. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've gone into these foreign countries and yes, there have been violent conflicts and yes, there have been civilian casualties as a result. To what extent are we to blame for that, even though our motives may have been pure? So I like how the show is continuing to deal with these really complex, morally gray issues. So what do you think, just on the surface of it, what do you think of Chaplin's decision to, you know, do the blockade run rather than just do a, an assault on Surratt's compound? Because I feel like if this were a different guy, he would have just said, let's go in guns a-blazing. If the hostages die, well, sometimes that happens. Like, But we can't just you know, have a dialogue with him. That's not the way things work. But Chaplin's a different type of captain. And he decides to play it out and see you know, what he can do, sort of the path of least resistance. 
Well, that is a good point. And I feel like, especially in, in pop culture, there's this idea that's repeated from real life, which is that the United States doesn't negotiate with terrorists. Mm-hmm. Like getting back to Air Force One or something. You kidnap right. Harrison Ford, the president. We, we don't negotiate. He right. kicks your yeah. ass. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we don't negotiate. And here we, we have our quote-unquote hero who is, in a way, negotiating. And kind of giving into his demands. And I think what it boils down to is, is, is you've got this American submarine crew, probably what, a hundred crew members? 150? Mm-hmm. I think they said it at one point. I can't remember the exact number, but it's a fairly small crew. So every person matters. That's very true. And you have to think to yourself, okay, yes, it's kind of not cool that they're negotiating with this warlord. On the other hand, if they were just to assault his compound, there's no guarantee that those three sailors would survive. And there's always the possibility that more people would die. Mm-hmm. And because it's such a small group, that matters. It, it might be, I don't want to say it's easy, but it, it might be easier when you're dealing on a grander scale with larger armies to say... It's worth the risk. We can afford to risk a few more lives to stick to our principles. But when you're dealing with such a small group, that's not as clear. That is quite true. I mean, I mean, you think about it that the military was just going to bomb the island. They were just going to wipe it out. Right. And to some extent, Chaplin has saved all of their lives. I mean, he endangered them, but then he did save them. But he's dealing with it in a different way. He's not coming at it the way the military is. You know, we saw a bit more of the war in the Middle East where we just keep firing nuclear weapons. Like, it's painting those in power as being ones who just do blanket actions and just kill without mercy and pick up the pieces later. And it's definitely saying Chaplin is not that sort of person. Chaplin wants to look at the situation, find out how he can save the most lives, how he can uphold his own principles. And I, I think that is... Well, well, it's interesting you say that yeah. the philosophy is different because I, I almost feel like it's the same. Hmm. If you look at Secretary of Defense Curry on that brief clip where he's on television, he's talking about how they needed to nuke Pakistan because Pakistan had some portable nuclear devices or something right, right. That, 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 that they could have used. Um, so as Autumn Research Character puts it, preemptive nuclear war is now yeah. our official policy. And that was the justification for why we went into Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, they might have weapons of mass destruction. Right. And you could argue that in the show, that's why they want to bomb the island. It's because you have nukes. You could potentially kill way more Americans Mm -hmm. than if we just bomb you. You know, as terrible as it is to kill 150 American sailors, in the long run, that might be the better choice. And so I feel like Chaplin arguably is operating... Under that same principle, which of the actions I take will result in the least amount of people getting hurt? Hmm. That is interesting that, to, to look at it that way. And I hadn't thought of it that way. And so I'm going to have to go back and and rethink my position a little bit. Right. The, the, the difference is that yeah. it, in one case, it's preemptive. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. I, I guess they could have, you know, Chaplin could have just come in and shot everybody on the island, figured that would just make it safer for everyone. And he didn't do that. He did sort of allow what was going on the island to continue. If sailors are stealing from merchants, he's going to make sure that doesn't happen. He meets this warlord, and rather than waging war, 
He's seeing what sort of alliance he can draw. You remember from the pilot, King's the, the seal, the conflicted right. seal. And he, he sort of explains how he's just going to kill all of Surratt's henchmen and then shoot Surratt through the neck. Chaplin's not doing that. Like, we're, we're drawing a very distinct parallel between the way King viewed this guy and the way Chaplin's viewing this guy. But at the same time, now we've got our captain not only negotiating with terrorists, but now he's a drug runner or a gun runner or something. <laughs> right. We, we don't know what they're smuggling. Right. Uh, I, it'll be interesting if they were, in fact, smuggling weapons that will actually be used against them. Yes. <laughs> because, again, that's another parallel to real life actions mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and, and what happens with the military and the government in real life. You know, sometimes you, you send weapons to armies overseas and they fall into terrorist hands and yes. being used against you. It'll be interesting to see if that actually turns out to be the case. So what, what did you think of the big action set piece? The one thing I want to mention is um, Carl Gadgetek, who's one of the executive producers on the show, is very active on Twitter. Um, I've had a little bit of dialogue with him. He seems to talk to anybody <laughs> who sends him a message on Twitter. And one really interesting thing I saw was someone asked him, what's the most difficult thing about writing Last Resort? And his answer was having to reinvent the show every week because there's no model show. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, it's not a crime drama where you've got a murder and you have to solve it and you have to catch the bad guy. Like, there's not that model that you sort of, you've got the skeleton that you need to hang the bone, hang the meat on every week. This is a show that could really go in any direction every week. It's trying to do a little bit of everything. It's trying to have yeah. action adventure. It's trying to have, uh, you know, elements of the, of the crime drama. It's trying to be a political thriller. Mm-hmm. It's trying to mix all these genres, which in one way makes it very difficult to fully succeed yeah. on all fronts. On the other hand, it's very ambitious and very exciting to kind of see it all gradually unfold. Yeah, as one person said on Twitter, it never becomes not awesome to see a sub come out of the water. Like, that's just cool every time, <laughs> right. seriously. Well, 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 you brought up the big action set piece in, in, in this episode. I assume you're referring to all the stuff, to everything that happened with the sub. Yes, exactly. Yes. And them having to, to, to dodge the, what was it? They weren't mines. Well, there were two destroyers or two that were based on either side of them. But what were they dropping? Oh, oh, yeah, they were dropping depth charges. D- depth charges. Yeah. yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. So that was exciting. And I also thought it was really cool how th- there was that whole sequence where they had to kind of navigate through the narrow canyon. Yes. Uh, because I believe that is another nod to Hunt for Red October as well. If I if I remember correctly, there was something similar. Yes. It is. I thought they did a. I thought they did a really good reference because I believe Hunt for October is the film with the the quote, "One ping only," and so Sophie tells Scott Speedman one ping, and then five minutes later she's like, "Okay, now another ping." He's like, "I thought you just said one ping." It's like, no, not just one ping. <laughs> You're like, good. It's going to be more than one. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Right. And oh, you, you, you brought up uh, Sophie, Sophie Gerard. Yes, the French woman. That character. You always got to have a French woman on the island. Her character has been one of the weaker elements of the show. Yeah. So far for me, they're not really developing her in a compelling way. So far, she's just the French woman who shows up to help out. Yes. <laughs> Even though she doesn't really want to. 
Well, that's basically yeah. her role. She just kind of every episode so far, it's like, uh, I, I'm sick of this and I don't like what's going on and I don't want to help you. <laughs> uh, but I don't want you to die. So I guess I'll help you out a little bit. Right. Well, at this point, she seems to have decided to just keep helping them because there's a boat. Her, what is it, boyfriend is going. Yeah, they, they never really explained. Is that her husband? Is that her boyfriend? Some what's, guy. What's going on here? Some guy that she kisses, apparently. You know, he tells her, which. Wow, if I ever catch myself saying this to my girlfriend, he says, you know, if you're not here by the time, I'm just leaving. Like, even if she ends up coming, like, that's a really terrible thing you just said. Um, That's going to haunt you for the rest of your life. But he does. He backs it up. She's not there. He leaves. So she's she's now stuck with them. I think she's come to accept that she does want to help them out, that she recognizes that they're on the side, you know, they're on the side of the angels. As, as Sherlock says, he, he may not be an angel, but he is on the side of the angels. So I think she's finally helping them. And plus, she seems to have a bit of a crush on uh, Commander Kendall. You think so? It'll be interesting to see if anything develops from that. Because right now, the only guy on the crew mm-hmm. who could, who it seems like could be a, you know, someone who, who starts a relationship is Kendall. But he's married. Yeah. And I really don't want them to go that route. I really don't want that whole soap opera. Oh, I love my wife, but I'm going to cheat on her because I'm stuck on an island. And here's this other person that I'm attracted to. I really hope they don't go that route. If his wife ends up betraying him, remember they they showed they showed her that video of him, and I, I think her loyalty was very tested. If she ends up turning on him and and being on their side i hope not i hope they don't go that route i mean she wasn't even in this episode no she wasn't (laughs) (laughs) they're like we'll leave that for another week yeah we have too much stuff going on (laughs) yes to to focus on that it's clear that they they are trying to throw in at least a little bit of some romantic subplots because you've got the Mm -hmm. whole situation with tani and King, where he goes to visit her father yeah. and her brother, and we found out a little bit more about her family life, and that didn't do much for me, honestly. It, it just seemed like it was thrown in, just so there could be an excuse to have those characters almost kiss. Right, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, she turns away before they kiss. Right. <laughs> Because she, I forget what she says, something like, you know, the best things in life never last. So I'm, I'm hoping that they'll just drag that potential relationship out <laughs> as opposed to bringing something up with, uh, with Kendall. I, I feel like it's going somewhere, that, that plot line. It's just, it's not going anywhere yet. Now, if you want it, now, if it's Sophie and Chaplin, okay, there's an interesting <laughs> relationship. I'm, I, I'm assuming. Chaplin isn't married. Yeah. He's never mentioned having there you go. a wife or a girlfriend. So why can't the two of them get together? <laughs> Somehow I don't see there being a romantic subplot for Chaplin anytime soon. Maybe maybe season three or four. <laughs> once they've been on the island a while, he's had time to relax. Yes, once he gets those sunglasses back on, he's smiling. He'll put on the sunglasses. Sophie will say, hey, let's go have a day at the beach. And then there will be this spark <laughs> there between you go. them. And then, see, then you've got three potential relationships. You've got you go. Sophie and Chaplin, you've got Kendall and his wife, and then you've got King and Tani. So why not go that route? <laughs> we, we do need more love triangles on, on the show, and I feel like they're, no, they're not no, developing not any. No, triangles. I've seen all that before. 
Oh, yes. That is quite true. I, I, they're, they're actually being a lot less on the relationships than I would figure. Grace Shepard doesn't appear to be starting a relationship with anybody or interested well, okay. in that. She's the other potential love interest for Kendall. That's, yeah. And, th- and that's where I figured they were going to go with it, but they ha- there's been no hints about that so far. And I, I really kind of hope that doesn't happen. What if Kendall has to choose between three women? <laughs> it's just like, oh, man, I love my wife, but there's this really cool French woman who's helped me out. And then there's Lieutenant Shepard. Uh, and then there's Cortez. And then, right. you know, what if Autumn Reeser makes her way to the island? It could, this could be a show just about Kendall having to choose between all of these women that are being presented to him. That's the true. That's the true point of Last Resort, I think. <laughs> that's a, that's a good point. Now that you bring that up, it seems like that there are a lot of strong female characters in the show. That there isn't a male counterpart to them being set up as yeah. a potential boyfriend, <laughs> and I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I don't think you everyone in a show has to be in a relationship, and yeah. I really hope that it doesn't get bogged down in in some of the more soap opery relationship drama. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. I, I don't need to see the show go in that direction. Like, we're sort of seeing Autumn Reeser, like, for God's sake, woman, actually do something good with your life. Like, don't have... How many boyfriends have we seen her have so far? Just one. Well, one, but then, I don't know, she's very flirty. And I feel like... Well, she, yeah, she kind of led... Yeah. It was implied that she kind of led Linus on. Right. And so... Her her arc is sort of going from that to, you know, using her brain and using what she can do and, and not just trying to, to parlay for power using her body. And I, and I hope that sort of continues on the show. Like, let's let it not bog down in relationship drama. Okay. Well, before we dive into our main topic, you brought up Autumn Research. So let's, I really quickly want to mention her. I mm-hmm. like how in this episode, she's not an exposition machine. Yes. <laughs> she's actually starting to take some initiative and have multiple dimensions yes <laughs> her character someone mentioned to me that the, in the original pilot script the sex positions scene just took place in a restaurant it was just her having dinner with a guy and telling him about the colorado well they, they had to spice that up a little bit especially because she was just going to talk to linus in the second episode that's true in a, in a restaurant yeah <laughs> but i i like how she's starting to want to uncover more answers and it'll be interesting to see if, if she if this if her storyline kind of becomes this all the president's men you know woodward and bernstein kind of investigative mm-hmm. type of, of of situation where she's having to really work hard to figure out what the whole story is Knock, knock. Marcus Chaplin claims that the nuke order sent to the Colorado came through the Antarctic network, not the main network. Which is impossible because we weren't under attack. Who believes a trigger-happy madman anyway? Uh, you do. That's why you came. I need to know who sent that order. I mean, just ask my friend Linus in Naval Intelligence. Oh, wait. He's lying comatose in a hospital because of a shellfish allergy. I'm allergic to nothing, by the way, so if that happens, throw a flag on the play, will Your friend Linus was nobody, but you're not. Your father golfs with the president, and I read somewhere where you're one of D.C.'s most eligible bachelorettes. Well, look where that's got me. You're uniquely qualified to do something about this. Uniquely qualified to risk my own ass to help you save your daughter? Who do you think I am? You're a parasite who traffics in war without ever getting your hands dirty, and this country has made you rich buying your family's weapons. Aren't you ready to do something in return? (laughs) 
And of course, the big reveal in this episode is that her father is somehow involved and right. took her hard drive with all of the information about the Perseus. Which, seriously, there's one hard drive with the schematics to the Colorado. Right. <laughs> yeah. And she's got it. <laughs> Surely she has a backup somewhere, <laughs> right? Surely someone has, I mean, it kind of even felt like it wasn't just her only copy. It was the only copy. I, I, it was, it was a weird, weird thing yeah. to have. Weird, a, a weird plot device. And I, that was, it's always the autumn research plots where I'm less like, really, that's what we're doing here. But I, I did, as you say, I liked it a lot better. Um, there's something more interesting going on. And, and yes, I guess it is her father who stole the hard drive. And we'll have to yes. see where that goes. Her father's played by, uh, Michael Gaston, who's, been in a lot of different things. He he's always mm-hmm. popping up in different shows. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what the story is with him and where his loyalties yeah. lie. Because clearly he's very powerful. And, and I I feel like he's got to be on the good side. Well, you know, whatever. He's not on the side with the the people in power in Washington right now. Because I don't know. I mean, I mean, he when he first we we first see him confront her quote unquote boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, that senator's aide or whatever. And he kind of just says, you know who I am, right? And the guy says yes. So clearly, he he's a man of power and influence and money. Right. And he's a weapons contractor, I'm assuming, which is why his daughter, Kylie, got into the mix. Right. So I, I, I'm wondering if maybe he's somehow involved with what's going on in Washington or if he knows a little bit more of the story. I don't think his motives will necessarily be pure. Not not pure, but but his own side. I, I don't think he's a henchman working for the government, I guess, is, is what I'm thinking. I don't think he, he's working for them, but maybe he's working in collaboration right, with right. them. I think that's very possible, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it'll be definitely interesting to see how, how that develops. Um, but we've been, we've been running for almost 40 minutes, mm-hmm. so we should dive into our main topic, which is... The situation with Cortez and Brannon and Redmond, the three sailors that were captured by Surratt. Ultimately, Brannon ends up just telling Surratt to kill Redmond, and that's what happens. So he's undoubtedly going to feel guilty about that. And then when the crew realizes what has happened, mm-hmm. Chaplin chooses not to strike back right yeah. away. And not to take action against Surratt. What did you think of that whole situation? Yeah, I was really uncomfortable with what Chaplin did here. I don't know that I feel like he should have busted in on Surratt and just took them. But he could have found some way to do it in the dead of night. The way he does it, he sort of just strolls in and says, Well, what do you want? And how much time are you giving me? And Surratt just completely plays him. He says, Well, you should have come to me sooner if you're going to complain about the timeline I'm giving you. And so he, he buys in the timeline and then he goes and when he doesn't make it back and he, he finds out that one of them's dead, he just, yeah, he just sort of backs down. I don't know. I don't know quite what I think about it. Like I do realize Surratt is a guy to be fearful of. Obviously he doesn't seem to have any morals. He does seem to be very powerful and he gets what he wants. So maybe it's good for Chaplin not to make him an enemy, but I really want to see him standing up to him a little bit more. Well, I think they are enemies, and I think they both know that they're enemies. Right. But I I actually have less of an issue with what Chaplin did than with what Brannon did. He killed Red? 
Yes. Okay, then. What are you going to do, Sam? Hold off the entire U.S. Navy on one side and fight an insurgency on the other? Do not make the mistakes of the other night. Got men in the bushes. Bomb under every vehicle. We bleed out in the We're fight. bleeding anyway. What do you think is going to happen when they know we let some thug execute one of our own, huh? What happens then? He gave us a deadline which we did not meet. We can't keep asking more of them. The one thing we have out here, the one thing we have out here is our loyalty to each other. That's it. And now we have to tell them they don't even have that. No country, no home, not even the faith that their death would mean something that will just allow them to be murdered. My son is lying unburied in a Navy freezer as the price for not capitulating. So please don't tell me about faith and vengeance. We will respond to this affront at the time and place of my choosing. Chaplin, as he later tells Kendall, his line of thinking is, we will strike back, but it will be on our terms. Right. So he didn't want to just react right away. Yeah. Which I think is probably the smart move. Yeah, because, I mean, it it wouldn't have done much good to to have a firefight right there in the place that Serrat had chosen. I'm sure he had a ton of men there and a bunch of them hidden, too. So, yeah, it wouldn't have been smart to react to it. So I think he made the right decision overall. It's more what happened inside the compound with Brandon and Cortez that made me very uncomfortable. First, she kind of gives her her body to Surratt mm-hmm. in order to keep him from, from torturing the other guys. And then Brandon basically takes the selfish route and it's just like, yeah, kill my friend here, not me. I, I, I wasn't quite clear. I guess I wasn't paying close enough of attention. Why was he able to do that? Like, what was the, uh, what what exactly happened there? Like, how did Brandon come to the decision, I'm going to say, kill him? Why was that something he was able to do? Well, what happened is that Surratt came in and said, Chaplin's late. I got to kill one of you. And then he took Cortez and told Cortez, which of these two guys do I kill? Right. You choose. And she refused to answer. So he pointed the gun at her. And that's when Brandon said, shoot this guy. Shoot the other guy. So I guess Surratt was just playing mind games with them and saying, "Though I- I'm going to kill one of you. Right. It's basically, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill one of you. You can either let me kill anyone I want or you, one of you can speak up and sell out your friend. Right. And, and just feel guilty about it. Because I mean, because now you've got Brandon who said kill him and then you've got cortez who like here's her friend her her you know this fellow soldier or um seaman who sold out their friend but they're both happy to be alive i guess god that's just man such a horrible horrible situation to be in well here's a hypothetical i want to throw out to you Mm -hmm. do you think brannon did it because he's in love with cortez because I was, I, I was thinking about it and I realized, yeah. okay, you know what? When she first offers to, to give herself to Surratt, mm-hmm. Brandon looks very uncomfortable. That's very true, and yeah. And he, he tells the other guy, you know, it's not what she said to him, it's what she did mm-hmm. with him. And later on, you know, he, he doesn't give up Redmond until Surratt points the gun at Cortez. Yeah. And that's when he steps in and says, no, 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 kill this guy. But isn't that still... Yeah, it's it's like the French guy saying, you know, if you're not here, I'm going to leave. Like, how can you possibly look Cortez in the eye when she knows that you only saved her by sentencing the other guy to death? Right. Like, obviously, the more noble thing to do 
would be to say, assuming he 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 does have feelings for her, which mm-hmm. is a huge assumption, right? You know, would the, the the noble thing to do would be to to say, take me, yeah, shoot me, right? But then, of course, if he's in love with her, he'll never get to be with her right. if he dies. Right. So it it is ultimately selfish. It's really selfish. Like it, it, you either like the best thing to do would be kill me. The second best thing would be everybody stays silent, and Surat has to choose. Right. He picks the worst thing. Well, 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 it's interesting because if you think about it, even if he did it out of love for mm. Cortez, it's still incredibly selfish. Yes. It's not altruistic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's an episode of, um, of Star Trek Deep Space Nine where Odo basically kills... 8,000 people. Well, he causes them to never have existed because, you know, it's time travel. But essentially, he destroys 8,000 lives in order to save the, the life of the woman he's in love with. And every time I watch the episode, I'm, I'm struck by just how dark of a choice that is and how I, ca- I can't believe Star Trek went that dark with this character. And it made me rethink this character over the whole course of the thing. And, and that's making me look at Brannon and wonder what sort of guy this is. You know, he he only sacrificed one one man, but still, that's what he would do for Cortez. And, and as you say, I, I do think he's probably in love with her. What else would he do for Cortez? And now, not only that, but Surratt knows what he would do. Well, well, that's the thing. Is it? It's not just for Cortez. It's the, the ultimate. It, it's for him and Cortez mm-hmm. to yep. be together. Yep. What would you do to be together with someone? Yeah. And if that is your ultimate goal then there really can be no truly altruistic decision because at the end of the day, it's all going to come back to you in one Mm -hmm. way or another and what you want. Yeah. It's really, really interesting issues. And again, I like how there are no easy answers with this show Mm -hmm. so far. Everybody is a very morally gray character and you don't know, should I like this character or should I hate them? Yeah. So I don't know if there's anybody at this point, three episodes in, anybody that I'm really like gung ho, I like this person, and I think their actions are just like maybe Chaplin, but here we see no, Chaplin. No, no. I, I I think Chaplin, his actions are definitely questionable, especially yeah. when you realize what happened with his son and everything like that. Right. I think Kendall and okay Sophie and uh, Grace are the three characters so far that were. They're supposed to kind of be our moral center. You're probably right about that. Although I see Kendall not discouraging Sophie at all in her affection. Um, Grace, okay, okay. Lieutenant Shepard, she's not doing anything bad. She's just doing her job. She's being, yeah, she's she's doing her job. And I think that's really good. I did like the continuity that she had her arm in a sling because she was shot last episode. They're, they're keeping track of that. The one thing about her doing her job is she's kind of uninteresting so far. That's the thing is that the, the, the more morally gray your characters are, the harder it is for an audience to sympathize with them, but it also makes them more interesting. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll definitely be, be interesting to see in the future if, if her ethics are ever really called into question the way that certain other characters' principles and ethics have been called into question. Yeah. Um, but is there is there anything else you would like to say about this episode of last resort before uh we 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 finish up yeah i i think we've we've pretty much covered it i do think the one thing we haven't touched on is the funeral at the end that surat's involved with i'm not entirely sure what it was trying to show but what it what i got out of it 
was that Surat has the heart of these people. That he may be a scary warlord, but the people on this island look up to him as a leader. And it's going to take a lot for Chaplin, if he does decide to attack Surat, it's going to take a lot for him to win the people over to his side. You do really get the impression that this this island, they are their own culture, their own society, they have their own traditions, and the USS Colorado has interrupted all of that. Yeah, yeah. So they really are outsiders. They aren't just outcasts from the United States. They're also in many ways outcasts on this island Mm -hmm. as well. And so in that respect, you're right. Even though he's a horrible person, Surratt arguably does have the respect of the people. And it does seem to a certain extent like he cares about the island and the people on the island, whether or not it's for selfish reasons at the end of the day, you know, perhaps, but he does seem to care about what happens yeah that's a very good point is there anything else you want to bring up i I think that does pretty much wrap it up i'm really excited to see where this show goes um next episode you know as carl talks about they're reinventing the show every week so i have no idea what sort of episode is coming up next week but i'm really excited the show's not getting the greatest of ratings but i think they're solid enough and i and i hope that we see the network stick with them at least let them show their 13 and I don't know, you know, maybe the show doesn't serve a second season, but I feel like it's on a solid path. It's not falling apart like Flash Forward did by the, at this point in the series. It's still propelling forward, making me really care about these characters and want to see what's going to happen to them next. Right. I feel like this this show is overall much better than Flash Forward. Flash yeah. Forward was a, kind of a train wreck from very early on. Yeah. And this show, even though it's, it's had its a, a few rocky moments overall, I feel like it just has potential to get yeah. so much better. Yeah. And I, I think it's starting to find its footing. So I really hope that it gets renewed. Of all the new dramas I've seen on, on network TV... I would say this one and Nashville are far and away the best. I'm hearing lots of good things about Nashville. I might actually tune into that one. There's no question that these two shows are are the best new shows on TV right now, in my, in my opinion. So I hope it can it stays good and it continues to be this interesting moving yeah. forward. The last thing I want to say before I close out the show, the Perseus. That'll be an interest. It'll be interesting to see how that comes into play in the future. Because as we saw in this episode, it's not perfect. It uses up a bunch of power on the submarine. Yeah. So it's possible that Kylie Sinclair's little baby isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's a little temperamental. Yeah. You don't want your cloaking device just to stop working all of a sudden when you're (laughs) right in the middle of a blockade. I think that was sort of the purpose of that was to say, it's like, okay, you've got it and it works, but you can't rely on it. It's not your perfect get out of jail free card. Right. And I, as, as someone, I think one of the engineers on the sub said at some point, you know, they can use the Perseus, but if they do, for if they use it for a long period of time, it'll use up all the power. All of the Perseus juice. Yeah, all the other res- <laughs> systems that they need. Yeah. So that's, that's not a good thing. No. But uh, I think that'll wrap it up for this dispatch. As always, we would love to get your feedback on the show. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. It really means a lot to us, uh, to, and we, we really want to know what you think, and that also helps get the word out about the show. Um, you can also email us by emailing lastresort at filmgeekradio.com. 
Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix and The Thin Place. Greg, where can people find you online? Yeah, well, first of all, you can check out my other podcast at trek.fm called The Ready Room, which is a Star Trek podcast where we do a news and then a feature discussion on a on an episode or a film. Um, and I'm also on the Twitter at Greg Harbin. That's G-R-E-G-H-A-R-B-I-N. Uh, please do follow me. Uh, let me know what you think of Last Resort, about Star Trek, about Doctor Who. I'm always making lots of nerdy friends on Twitter, so <laughs> please join in and let me know that you're a Dispatches listener. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash writer Andrew. If you follow me, please message me and let me know that you're a listener and I'll be sure to follow you back. You can also find more of my work over at filmgeekradio.com. I've been writing a lot uh, for the blog extension over there. At the moment, I'm going through all of the Bond movies in chronological oh, yes. order yeah, in, in preparation for Skyfall in a few weeks. And I'm writing up a feature article about each film as I watch it. So go to filmgeekradio.com and check that out. All right, XO Harbin, I think we've reached the end of this dispatch. I concur. Insert your key into the firing mechanism. Yes, sir. And three, two, two one. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!